Welcome to Toy Fix Episode 3. I'm Wes. And I'm Andy. And we're looking at Wave 2 of the Toy Biz X-Men series. We're going through each wave systematically, heroes and villains, and telling you what's worth keeping, which is really all of them. I was going to say that you can just answer that question right now. Not a, There's not a single wasted ounce of plastic in this line, <laughs> and it's certainly not in Wave 2. Um, well, this might be the first time we have a difference of opinion, but we'll, we'll see as we get to there. First, we got to do what we do every time, which is talk about the context of the line. Wave two came out in 1992, and this was heady peak days for the X-Men. It's a big year for the X-Men. Um, do, so we're going to start by talking about the comics? Let's go for it. Okay, so in the X-Men comics, we are now in the era of the blue and gold strike forces. Um, We talked about this in the earlier episodes in uh, 1991, X-Men volume two, number one launched. When that happened, uh, Uncanny X-Men also began a new plot storyline. These two new X-Men teams were debuted. So there was a really large cast at this point. I believe there were 12 X-Men total. Uh, They were divided between the blue team, whose adventures were chronicled in X-Men Volume 2, and the Gold Team, whose adventures were chronicled in Uncanny X-Men. This was also, this was a time when the artists, uh, artists were becoming more and more important in the comic book industry. Jim Lee, who had been penciling Uncanny X-Men before he moved over to X-Men Volume 2, he was now also moved into um, plotting the stories, which is different from scripting them, because John Byrne came in to script them. Over in Uncanny X-Men, Will Sportasio became, um, he was the artist, uh, the penciler, and then was also uh, plotting with John Byrne scripting. And these are really like the quintessential X-Men teams for me. Ever since then, everything has seemed like a hollow echo of 1992. When you look at some of these covers, you're just like, ah, those are the X-Men. I 100% agree. These are the X-Men that you, if you watched the X-Men animated series, you would have seen a team that was largely based off of these two teams. And I agree that these are, these are my X-Men. Even if this isn't my favorite era in X-Men comics, it's the most iconic. Uh, so a couple of important things were happening in the plot line of the comics too. So as these new, I would say writers, I mean, again, they were only plotting, but as the new writers took over, they moved the story in a different direction. In X-Men Volume 2, we had a really important hot new villain debut, um, Omega Red. Uh, He was totally a villain who would become iconic and central to the X-Men storyline. He definitely wasn't just a flash-in-the-pan villain who appeared in one arc that didn't make any sense. I'm really sorry. Uh, I'm confused. Are you being honest? (laughs) I'm being a little bit snarky. So they were, but I mentioned that because they were moving things in a new direction. Um, In the initial arc of X-Men Volume 2, Magneto was killed. Spoilers, he wasn't actually killed, but he was presumed dead for quite some time. And the creative teams were bringing in new characters. Over in Uncanny X-Men, there was also a bit of a clearing being done. So in the first storyline of the Gold Team, two very long-standing and major groups of X-Men villains, the Reavers and the Hellfire Club, were 
basically taken out by a new group of characters who are called the Upstarts. Uh, in that initial, I know you're laughing, yeah, the Upstarts. It was a really cool idea that went nowhere. In, in that initial arc, the idea of the Upstarts competition was introduced, which was a competition between these new evil mutants to kill off. They would get points for killing other major characters, basically. Um, that plot, that story arc was also significant because it featured the debut of Bishop, who uh, was another mysterious mutant from the future. And we have a lot of mysterious future mutants. That was a really popular theme at this time in X-Men comics. But eventually, a Bishop would kick off. Bishop would bring with him the X-Trader storyline that was a major plot line until it was resolved really disappointingly. But so it I, definitely I, drive the series for like five years, really. Exactly. But I mention this because there are all these new characters coming in. Um, you had the original X-Factor team being folded back into the X-Men team. So Cyclops and all of those characters were back as X-Men again. Many of the prominent X-Men characters debuted new costumes during this era, including Cyclops, Storm, Rogue, and Jean Grey. And um, I think that context is really important because as we talk about this wave of toys, we will see that it really doesn't pick up on any of those cues. <laughs> well, I mean, when you really want to reinvent yourself, there's nothing like signing up for Stitch Fix to really change it and send that message to everyone. And that's what Cyclops was doing by wearing belts on his chest. Absolutely. There's always a place to put something if you were a superhero in the 90s because you had at least 17 pouches on your costume. Well, that's where all the tourniquets go. First, I think we have to come to an agreement, like, about who is in each of the teams, because I think we can follow that as a through line for these waves. The gold team, which was mostly an uncanny, I mean, that's some of the more classic characters by that point. We've got Iceman, Colossus, Archangel, Storm, and Jean Grey, who by that point was no longer a menace. She was also no longer Marvel Girl. She was, uh, that, it was during this era that she started, um, that she dropped her code name altogether. Yeah, it was those five. And then Bishop eventually would join as the sixth member of the gold team. And I mean, props to Jean for being like, I don't need names. I'm just Jean. Like, you guys can start calling each other weird one names. I'm Jean Grey. Like, that's fine. Exactly. But then eventually she would be, she started going by Phoenix, which is sort of confusing since the Phoenix almost destroyed the planet. And well, I guess it didn't almost destroy the planet, it destroyed a different planet. Um, and then anyway. her like weird future daughter also was going by Phoenix, but Rachel has a lot of issues. Yeah, but she got lost in the time stream again. So that, um, that freed up the code name for Jean. Um, and now 30 years later, Jean is going by Marvel Girl again. Uh, so go figure. Um, so it's interesting, so you bring up the, the gold team. The gold team, I think was also definitely the B team. Because at oh. this point, I know, I, and I'm not, I'm not saying that because I feel that way, but like when I think about like what was cool and, 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 and exciting to kids back in the early 90s, you know, Jim Lee had been penciling X-Men for quite some time at this point. I, Jim Lee is a phenomenal, phenomenal artist. And although you can, I can certainly find flaws with the stories in some of those X-Men comics of that period when he was really, I think he was still learning how to write a good story in some ways. Um, the art is is top notch. It's 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 fantastic. And so it seems like he probably got the first pick in his book um, featuring the blue team. He had Cyclops as the leader. He had Wolverine. He had Gambit. He had Psylocke. He had Beast, and he had the coolest character of all of them, Jubilee. 
Yes, Jubes was in there, but uh, don't forget Rogue also oh, for right. sexual tension. Other than Cyclops, all of those characters are super interesting. I'm really curious as to why Cyclops wasn't in the line that was supposed to have Jean, at least to like play off of each other sort of romantically. But I guess we didn't do that back then. We were very uh, heroes and not angsty dramas back then. Yeah, well, it's sort of interesting. I think that Storm, I think Cyclops and Storm are both such good characters. I think that Storm, is, when written well, is a much more interesting character. But, if, they had, um, if they had swapped her in to the blue team, no one would have read Uncanny X-Men, unfortunately. <laughs> that's a good point. You don't think Archangel would have been enough to draw people in? I, I love me some blue skin. I, I would have read Archangel for sure. But yeah, I was mainline X-Men at that time. So I, I was reading the blue team. So something else happened in the world of X-Men in 1992. Do you know what that was? In 92, uh, 92 was the debut of the X-Men animated series on Fox. I thought it was 93. No, it was 92. It was October 31st, 1992. And so it, it it debuted at the very end of the year. You know, the influence of the cartoon isn't really present on this wave because I think this wave actually preceded it chronologically. But I just want to, as we're talking about the history of the X-Men, I think that we need to mention that that happened in 92. Because as this goes on, as that, as that cartoon became more and more popular, it's going to have more and more of an influence on the toys that we see. For good and for bad, for sure. Exactly. Uh, one thing I think that you sort of hinted at already is none of the storylines from Jim Lee's takeover in 1991 were really reflected in these toys. And I think, you know, maybe we're gonna have to break that down as we talk about each character. But as I was researching, I came across one cover that basically just shows you where this toy line came from. This is the one they sent to the factory. And I'm sure you looked at this one too. Uh, um, it's gonna be, it's, it's Uncanny X-Men 275. 275. Yeah. And there's everyone in their sexy yellow and blue costumes. And yeah, that's a baller team right there. Baller, but also a very short-lived team. So this was the storyline that occurred just before the relaunch. And it, well, it was this story and then the Muir Island saga. And in both of those, you see this team, Wolverine, Forge, uh, Banshee, Gambit, Psylocke, Jubilee, and Storm wearing those um, Jim Lee-designed blue and gold X-Men jumpsuits. I, I love them. They look great. But yeah, so like this sort of gives you an idea of the lag time between like the creative publication and probably how long it took to mold the characters and print them. So right. 91, April 1991, and then this line came out in 92. I'd say that's pretty quick considering we can't even like build a basic house around here in less than a year. Right, and, and we all know that building an action figure is much more important than building, or much more complicated than building a house. Uh, <laughs> well, when you talk about the sort of uh, reach you have to have, every single toy, you know, toy store needs to have access to Forge at the same time. You know, what's interesting is that these, I mean, this, this team that we're talking about here from Uncanny 275 is not an iconic team. It was short-lived. This the, the time when all of the characters were wearing the jumpsuits was also short-lived. So it's, it's fascinating to me that in some, ways, in some ways the toy line was prescient because 
it debuted and started before the X-Men became like the huge pop culture phenomenon that they would become as we move later into the, into the mid nineties. And just with this cover, you sort of see the problem of X-Men having matching uniforms and that nobody, like you have to find other ways to have them stand out. So the cool thing about that is you get like diversity, you get, people of different skin tones you get different hair colors you get different body types i mean super strong and moderately strong (laughs) do you (laughs) still waiting for blob to put on the yellow and blue that'd be awesome and when you look at the the toy line that matches up with these characters you can see from from the group photos it's all yellow and blue and they sort of spread them out in, in the group photos with the villains in between. So it doesn't look so monochromatic, really. It's a good point. It's, and it's interesting how I think more so than any of the other waves that come next, the yellow and blue jumpsuit is really prominent in this wave. Should we move on to the figures? Let's talk about the action figures. Uh, there's, there's a lot to discuss. With we're, we're just looking at the heroes, of course. And first up is... Sean Cassidy, a.k.a. Banshee. Banshee is the mutant master of sound. With his mighty scream, he can rocket himself into the air and fly at near supersonic speed or shatter the strongest steel. Banshee can even hypnotize enemies with a mind-numbing shriek. But the longer he screams, the weaker he becomes. If he screams for too long, he'll lose his voice and become as helpless against his enemies as an ordinary human. Well, here's here's the character with range. I know. Well, this is just as we were talking about with the episode one when we were reviewing the heroes of Wave One. I like how they also mention the weaknesses. They really present uh, Banshee as a well-rounded character for sure. And I don't know why he's in this wave, even though this is a pretty awesome figure. So I will. I can provide a little bit of background for Banshee. Uh, so he first debuted in the Silver Age and was originally an X-Men villain. And then he became a member of the all-new, all-different X-Men that debuted in Giant Size X-Men number one in 1975. But he was the first member of that team. Well, Thunderbird was killed. And then Banshee was written out several, several issues later because I think the writers didn't know what to do with him. He was then a background character for a long, long time. He returned to quasi-prominence during the, during the era that directly preceded the blue and gold team era, which was what's called sometimes the non-team era. It was the end of Chris Claremont's run, and the X-Men, who are believed to be dead, all went through this portal called the Siege Perilous and were given new lives. So during that time, when there really wasn't a team of X-Men, but the, the comics were following like different disparate stories featuring a handful of characters, Banshee and Forge linked up and um, formed a group that's oftentimes called the Muir Island X-Men for a very brief storyline in Uncanny X-Men 254 and 255. It's during that storyline that Banshee first gets this costume. And it's actually during that storyline that we first see these blue and gold X-Men jumpsuits that Jim Lee designed based on the original cost, the original X-Men costumes. But this blue and yellow is very similar to his classic look, except his classic was sort of green and yellow. Yes, it is. So Banshee, and like this also will tie into Forge, who we'll also talk about, Banshee and Forge actually were given an important role during this era of the X-Men because 
they had not been members when the X-Men were believed to be killed, uh, but both had ties to the team. And so they linked up and they were both convinced that the X-Men were still alive. And so they set out together to find the X-Men and reunite them. Um, they were given a pretty important part in the series. And then eventually the X-Men did all get back together. That's what led into that storyline we just talked about. They were members of the team for that. But then when the Lion relaunched and the Blue and Gold teams debuted, both Banshee and Forge were still in the mansion, but they were relegated to reserve membership of the X-Men. It's, it's like they really pulled it out when they were most needed and they still got put on, on the back burners the second they brought back the good heroes. No, exactly. And so it's like, it's, it, it's hilarious. It, it makes sense that Banshee and Forge are both characters in this wave because they were really important characters in the comics for a brief period of time but then they were both shuffled into the back a background again well what else could you expect from someone who's rocking a 70s era collar and whose action feature is sonic scream i love banshee as a character and i love his his wild collar I love the weird wing things that he has that he uses somehow to ride sound waves and fly. It's really something. And that's and you mentioned this earlier, when you have all the X-Men wearing the same costumes, you have to do some things to make them visually distinct. And Banshee has one of the most notable examples of this where his costume also incorporates these this cape thing that he uses to fly. And at this time, like even though the animated series came out in 92, he really wasn't on it. So when we had this figure and we were playing around with it, what did his cape become? It was a way he would hypnotize the villains because <laughs> it looks totally sort of like a sense. swirl. No, because they, they talk about the hypnotic ability or the hypnotizing ability, and it totally looks like something that you could use to hypnotize somebody. Or if, you know, a large owl were trying to eat him, he could just open his wings and it looked like two big eyes. Exactly. I also, I love the, uh, I mean, like the, the figure is bright yellow, bright blue, and he has the red belt. I love the way the colors, the colors pop. I think it's, I think it's a really, I really like this costume a lot. I do too. My brother had, I feel like my brother had all of the toys and I just played with them. Did you use the whistle much? So yeah, so Banshee's action feature is that he is a whistle. I think I used it a little bit. I think it's a very strange action feature. In order to to be a whistle, he has this weird indentation on his chest. I give them points for creativity. I will say, I as we were preparing for this, I was wondering how many colds and other mild viruses were passed between kids as they were playing with Banshee. This would definitely not fly in the post-COVID-19 era. For sure, but this was a good way to make sure that all the kids on your block got chicken pox at the same time which i know is always sort of the goal yeah the the banshee like this is weird because i think x-men they they did everything they could to make sure every character came with something to hold in their hands but banshee did not and even though he's supposed to be flying his hands instead of being like faced up as if he were flying they're faced sort of backwards as if he's lounging in a pool <laughs> yeah it seems like a strange choice i i do like though that they, they changed the articulation for banshee so that his instead of his arms swiveling up and down at the shoulders they go out so that he can simulate the whale of the banshee pose uh, but you're right the the way that they placed his hands doesn't make any sense 
looking at the packaging, I do want to point out that the toll-free number has switched to a 1-800. So we know that this is a much more important business by this point. Yeah, toy business is really growing before our very eyes. I also love the card art on Banshee's card. I just think it's really, I think it's, I think it looks great. It's super dynamic. From a comic, it is what it looks like. This is like a very, you know, adult toy. And there's something I've noticed, like, I mean, it's not, this is not for five-year-olds. No. <laughs> when I say adult mature, toy. A mature, uh, a, a more mature toy collector and player. Who might want to have a whistle attached to their character. Um, there's something else I'm noticing on the upper left-hand corner of this pa- package. It says Marvel Dy- Dynamax. I think and it's then Dynamics, it has right? Dynamics. And we talked earlier about, you know, sort of comic covers, and it's got the pictures of some of the heroes from this line. I'm recognizing a lot of them, but who's that person wearing a costume of the planet Saturn? (laughs) That's Havoc. I think, I definitely want to talk more about Havoc when we get to, like, Wishes. Oh, Um, okay. But yeah, so again, so this is the, the card has been slightly updated from the first wave. Um, The coloring is still the same. But they've updated the upper left-hand corner box and included the uh, heads of the characters who are part of this line. And then the Dynamics or Dynomax or whatever that is, I guess that was like a way to signify that it was a different wave. Perhaps we should be calling this the Dynamics wave, but I've, I've never heard it referred to as such. Well, I am taking notes for how we might title this episode. And the first possible title was background characters so (laughs) dynamics sounds a little bit better (laughs) Um, i also want to mention that um banshee's cape is not cloth which i think up until this point i've always only seen cloth capes and toys but it's this like sort of like crinkly plastic you know as a kid i didn't love the plastic but i will say that like it probably looks better than cloth would have because it's able to retain its circular shape and um, it probably held up in the long term better than cloth would have. Oh, for sure. I mean, it, it seemed like something you might be able to use to fly. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, it, it, it definitely seemed that way. And then I, and the thing I want to say about the whistle, as weird as it was, at least it wasn't obtrusive. It didn't really get in the way of the playability of the toy. For sure. Is it worth, I mean, what should he have come with? For his hands. Every other toy has something for their hands. What should Banshee have had for his hands? Or his excellent chest question. or something. I mean, the thing is like the Banshee just doesn't doesn't have any classic accessories. I think he's not like associated with anything like that. I mean, maybe a picture of his lady love, Moira McTaggart. <laughs> a picture to look at while he's out on his missions. That would be great. Like a wallet. <laughs> exactly. A wallet with a photo of Moira. And then maybe a few, like, 1990s style, like, U.S. dollars, like, very small. Even, like, a small plastic, I don't know, computer console would have been nice. Because, I mean, let's be honest, Juggernaut came with, like, a huge thing that you could put on his chest. Banshee should have had something. Like, it was a little hard for me to, like, price out getting this action figure. Because he's basically a a whistle with arms. (laughs) That's a very fair critique. I think this is the only figure that's ever been made of Banshee in this exact costume. There's a later one that has the variation that he wore in Generation X, but I don't think that, like, I, I think it's probably because this figure was so good, they just didn't need to ever redo it. No. Finished. Who would buy a uh, Marvel Legends Banshee where they can go back and get this Toy Biz version? Exactly. But you know what? I'm, 
have something to look for on eBay tonight. Another one of these. <laughs> Shall we talk about Forge? Only catching the scent of two people. There should be dozens. We're still going in, right? Don't make me regret bringing you Forge. You're here for analysis only. Got it? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> of course. You got it. So all of the prep time I should have spent looking into the, all of this line was completely invested into another podcast, which is exclusively about Forge. Wow. Because I was so confused about his inclusion in this line and where he was at as a character. I can't wait. Forge is the X-Men's brilliant high-tech weapons inventor. Not only can he custom design a deadly arsenal in almost no time, he's ready to jump straight into action and use it. In fact, Forge is such a fierce fighter that when he straps on his weapons and activates his amazing bionic leg, he becomes a one-man army. I will say as a child, my big question was, what was his mutant power? It was not at all clear to me based on this card back. There's not a lot clear about Forge, which is why I spent so much time researching him. Um, I, I, I do want to talk about something real quick in that character summary. As I was looking to the future and other X-Men characters and X-Force characters that would be featured, uh, you know, Forge is Native American, and that's not mentioned anywhere in this summary. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. Like, is that progress or is that not progress? Because later, there are characters where they bring it up very explicitly. But this character, his design and the pictures, I mean, it sort of hints at like a, a Western origin. What, what do we feel about that? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I believe that Forge is Cheyenne, uh, but that's it's a major part of his backstory and his character in the comics. So he, he played a role in that storyline I just talked about, but he actually debuted in the early 80s. His, his mutant power is that he can make anything, which is, it's, it's strange to say this when like other characters have like optic blasts to be like, oh, like he can make anything seems really ill-defined to me, but it seems like it's hard to, it seems like he could easily become like a deus ex machina character for almost any storyline. In any case, he debuted uh, in a storyline where he had created a device that neutralized mutant powers and that device was used on Storm. Uh, and I was looking at this, his first character introduction was with Valerie Cooper and Mystique as Raven Darkholm. How crazy is that? No, exactly. He, was work he wasn't associated with the X-Men. He was a mutant inventor who was working with the government and creating, creating weapons that they could use in their fight against evil mutants. Um, and also the dire wraiths, I believe, which were, I don't think is worth us getting into. But he, he then, so he played a major role because he was responsible for Storm being depowered. And she was depowered for quite some time. Um, but she retained leadership of the X-Men because she's a badass. And then he played a major role in the Uncanny X-Men chapters of the Fall of the Mutants storyline, which involved the X-Men fighting against this villain called the Adversary that um, Forge had ties to. And it culminated in Forge casting a spell that killed the X-Men in order to seal the adversary away in another, another dimension. Pardon me, casting a spell? <laughs> oh, yes. Forge is also a powerful shaman. Yes, Forge is a powerful shaman. Like, I feel like we've glazed over almost one of the most interesting part of his backstory, which is how he got that robotic leg. Can we revisit the Vietnam era? Yeah, so Forge was a Vietnam vet. And he lost his hand, one of his hands and one of his legs in the war. Thank you for your service. I think that um, uh, his 
battalion was ambushed and a number of them were killed by the Viet Cong. And so he cast a spell that used the souls of his fallen comrades to summon demons to attack the Viet Cong, right? That's what happened? That is exactly what I got out of this. And I was like, this definitely screams for an action figure in 1992. But then his power is that he's an inventor. (laughs) Wow. Like, what an interesting character. This is why I spent so much time looking into him, because I was like, wow, obviously none of that's on the card back. He's he's been a part of some interesting stories. So after he was responsible for Storm being depowered, she didn't know at first, and he took her in to, like, help rehabilitate her. And they fell in love, uh, as, as you do. And, and then she found out that he had actually designed the weapon that stripped her of her powers. And so uh. she was not happy that he had lied about that or that he had done that. And so I can see why you would hide that, though. <laughs> yeah. So it sort of um, threw a wrench into their relationship. Um, and I think that she, like, swore to kill him for a while. That's, but a, she that's a strong response, Aurora. Well, this was like during a, a period of time when it was after the Mutant Massacre, she was going through a lot and she was like not taking any, I'm, I'm sorry, any, any, I don't, I can't, any, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, I wasn't sure where, if we're, I, I guess, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll allow like a minor curse on the show. Um, I hadn't really thought about it. Well, I'm, I'm hoping this will be like, for, you know, like an all ages podcast. <laughs> because I'm sure children, children today want to listen to people in their 30s talk about toys that came out 30 years ago. <laughs> As I was researching Forge, I read an incredible line from a summary from UncannyXmen.net written by someone called Ruth and Monolith. Can I please read this quote to you? Quote, With the reorganization of the X-Teams, Forge mainly worked in the background as team mechanic, improving the Blackbird, Danger Room, Xavier's Wheelchair, and such. I love Xavier's Wheelchair. (laughs) It's a call out there. Ruth and Monolith, thank you for your journalistic integrity and not, like, minimizing any of his contributions. Because, like, Forge really does have, like, quite a power set. And it's important to remember that, like, sometimes we can use our powers for, like, amazing weapons, but accessibility is also amazing. No, absolutely. And I believe in, in the storyline Life Death, when he's helping Storm recover from her depowering, he talks about how he had to learn to like live with not having a leg and an arm. And so there's uh, a lot going on with this character. Uh, he, but th- I think the issue is that Forge just, because his power isn't super offense-based, he hasn't really like, been given many um, storylines where he's actually like the central character. I think the only time when he really is the main character is during the post-Age of Apocalypse Howard Mackey run of X Factor. Which I read. And if that is your, if that is like your high point as a character, like you, you are not a popular character. Oh, can we talk for a second about his costume here? This look for Forge, I think is his default look. I think when he shows up in comics, even through to the present, he's more often than not wearing this X-Men jumpsuit. Isn't the robotic leg part sort of, it's actually clear and there's like computer underneath showing through? Yeah, it was pretty cool looking. This was the first, um, this was the first figure I got at the second wave. And I remember I was super excited when I got to the toy store that day and there were new X-Men figures. And everything else was sold out, so you got Forge? I don't know why I picked Forge. I mean, I just, it seemed, 
he seemed cool to me at the time. I think I was probably drawn to the X-Men uniform. I don't know if Banshee was in the store that day. Um, I will say, like, looking at my notes, now that we're shifting to talking about the figure, my first note is I had no idea who this character was. And I, his, his bio wasn't enough to help me learn who he was. And I remember when I first saw the Night of the Sentinels episodes, um, the debut episodes of X-Men the Animated Series, and Morph shows up wearing this X-Men costume. Um, I guess I misheard when they, they said Morph's name, but I thought that maybe Morph was Forge. Uh, and I mentioned that just because it, like, I think it reveals how like befuddled I was as to like who this person <laughs> even was. I think that the Forge action figure ended up doing a lot of cosplay as Morph for people who were playing with the X-Men figures at the time. Um, the mechanic leg though was really cool. And the way that it was done with the clear plastic with like the underlying, you know, like circuitry that was clearly printed paper um, looked good and was neat. Yeah. The, the quick draw action I think was fine. It wasn't obtrusive. Um, his gun was like permanently molded to his hand, I think. Oh, really? So he was always shooting a gun, um, which you know, like I liked when I when I like played with my action figures when I was a kid. I like to also have like scenes back at the mansion, and you know, like those like those character building scenes that the X Men comics are famous for. And like so baseball, I had to always like, come up with a reason for like forge to actually have, like still be holding a gun while they were like you know hanging out by the pool he wasn't practicing a lot of firearm safety i feel compelled to point out for our young listeners um, it should be holstered unless you plan to use it for target practice against <laughs> non-people at all times for sure um the the his i guess it's his right forearm which was also mechanical also was made of that clear plastic and mine broke pretty quickly. So I had to super glue it back together and I lost that point of articulation. Um, So it was like, it looked cool, but like, I think that there were some, um, that plastic was a little bit weaker than the rest of the plastic used. Fair enough. And I do have to point out, even though Cyclops beat him as a character to being produced, Forge was the first one to have a chest satchel with all those pockets. So it's really like Forge almost influenced Cyclops' later costume. Oh yeah, he's got that bandolier across the across his chest. Oh, that's Absolutely. a good word, bandolier. So Forge was such a strange choice as a character in Wave 2 because he ultimately was just a background character and there were many more prominent characters who could have been given this spot. However, I will say that as a child when I picked up this toy, it was really exciting to learn about this new character because to me it suggested that there was this whole universe of X-Men stories that I was just finding out about. And there were all kinds of characters that I had not yet been introduced to. And of course that was true. I and mean, the X-Men had been published for almost 30 years at that point. Um, but that idea of there like being this gigantic universe that I was just entering um, it was really exciting to me as a kid. Yeah, I love that too. Even like at the time, if you were only looking at the animated series, 
characters like this sort of told you that there were other things happening. And the animated series did a great job of that by sometimes having like a guest character or even just in like a flash showing a couple images of a character that you would recognize from a toy or from a comic series. And that was really cool. Yeah, I love that about the animated series. And toward the end of the series, um, Forge, Forge shows up actually throughout it, but toward the end he shows up as a member of X Factor. And you get the sense that this whole other mutant team out there that's having their own adventures that intersect with the X-Men only at certain times, which was pretty cool. So now we're going to go to a character who definitely was much more well-known than Forge and definitely would continue to be very prominent for the rest, you know, up through to the present. He needs no introduction, but you're still going to read the back of his card. <laughs> He's the best there is the way he does. Are you sure this is where they've taken her, Wolverine? The nose knows, tough guy. His super sharp adamantium claws can slash through steel. His mutant healing ability can mend even the worst wounds in minutes. He's Wolverine, the best at what he does, and what he does best is fight evil mutants. With his keen senses of sight, smell, and hearing, and his frighteningly fierce fighting style, Enemies claim Wolverine is more animal than mutants, but his fellow X-Men know that he's the best friend they have, <laughs> especially when the going gets deadly dangerous. I don't think that Cyclops considers Wolverine the best friend he has. I actually think it's super cute that they wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> so like the, the classic line from the comics is that he's the best there is in what he does, and what he does isn't very nice, but I guess they thought that that was not appropriate for children's toy line. Or maybe it was also just too mysterious and kids who tend to be more literal wouldn't understand it. Yeah, I actually, like, that write-up is super sweet. It makes me think all sorts of positive things about the early 90s. It's really cute. Um, And what also is cute is the image of Logan here on the front of the card. I have to point out this image, this is, by the way, what's called second edition Wolverine and the classic yellow tiger stripe costume. This image is super cartoony compared to all of the other images on the card backs for this line. I think that might be, to me, it looks like Dave Cockrum's art from the, uh, the early all new, all different X-Men era. But I could, that, I could be totally wrong about that. Yeah, it does. It does really look like it has a more streamlined look versus like we'll look at later Gambit, Iceman, Forge, Banshee. They all have like really detailed, if not Jim Lee, then on that level of artwork going on. But this one is super straightforward. It sort of points towards like the animated series really for me. Excuse me, this costume is the iconic Wolverine costume, I think. It first debuted in Giant Size X-Men number one. It's a slight variation on the costume from his first appearance. He, he wore it through the um, start of the all-new, all-different era up through the end of the Dark Phoenix saga, more or less. And that's when he changed to the, the brown and orange costume that we um, saw represented in the first wave. However, when Jim Lee uh, took over the X-Men, he brought this costume back in X-Men Volume 2, Number 4, and this costume is also Wolverine's look for the animated series. And then this, this costume and slight variations on it would be Wolverine's default look, um, almost up through to the present. Really only recently, he started wearing the brown and orange again. Yeah, and, and like most Wolverines, this one comes with a gun. <laughs> it looks, it's like an Uzi, right? I mean, 
I, I don't know for, for fighting the Gambino crime family. <laughs> this Wolverine is quite versatile. Banshee, who's a glorified whistle, doesn't come with anything, but this Wolverine has like spring out slashing claws, more points of articulation, and a gun. I mean, this is a great, great action figure. I had some of the other Wolverines, but this was this was the Wolverine, the only Wolverine I really used with any degree of regularity. I love this costume. I mean, in my mind, this was the as a child, this was the best Wolverine costume. Now I actually like the brown and orange better. Um, but as a kid, this I thought was was by far the best. I liked the way that the claws worked on this. So they're they're like spring loaded, so you could like use you could like sort of like push them into things and they would retract, but um, they don't retract fully. And because of that, this Wolverine action figure does have articulation at the elbows. But this one is cool. He also, you know, has the waist articulation. So he could, you know, slash around. He could really, you know, have that rage that Wolverine is well known for. Yeah, that berserker rage. He also has this little, it's not a lever, but it's like a little uh, piece on his back. So you could use your thumb to like make him swivel back and forth. You know, this one has his mask on permanently. The mask looks good. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah, so it's fully molded. It looks great, I think. Yeah, it, that's, the, I mean, it's Wolverine. It's the one that, like, if my eyes were gouged out, this is the Wolverine I would probably picture in my mind forever. I hope that never happens. Thank you. Uh, the only, so there's, like, the two things about this figure that I think are not perfect. I mean, one is the gun accessory, which, of course, you can always just throw it away, but it doesn't make any sense Wolverine to come with a gun. And the other, you know, was that this Wolverine is too tall. Wolverine canonically is, I think, 5'3". And although I don't think that we can expect that kind of variation in scale from a mass market toy line of the early 90s, um, this Wolverine, I think, was like taller than most of the X-Men when he was released. I feel like Wave 1 Wolverine was shorter than the other ones. He was. Yeah, he was. Um, so it's too bad they didn't do that with this one as well. Now for a true classic, the Gambit. Remy LeBeau, part of the Thieves or Thieves Guild in Nolan. <laughs> yeah, this was also during the height of comic book writers writing out accents phonetically. Poor Gambit. His dialogue really was something. How did you do that? With style, petit. With style. Gambit has the mutant ability to take the energy of any object and put it to his own use. That use usually means turning the object into a deadly weapon. Gambit is a martial arts expert with a lightning-fast karate kick. When battling multiple attackers, Gambit relies on his techno battle staff for additional assault power. I also don't recall Gambit in the comics ever being a martial arts expert. Um, nor do I remember him having a techno battle staff. Well, he always sort of like used his staff. Like, I've had multiple gambits that come with staffs. I didn't know it was a techno one, but... Of all the characters that we've talked about so far, Gambit is the one who had debuted the most recently at the time that this toy was made. Um, he first showed up in Uncanny X-Men 266. Um, August was- 1990. Exactly. I actually have that issue. It's one of the few um, floppy issues of the X-Men I have. Um, and he, that was during the non-team era. Um, he debuted during this storyline where he and the DH Storm were, I think, battling the Shadow King in Nolens. Um, 
but then when the X-Men all reformed, um, Gambit joined them alongside Storm and stayed on. I mean, this really tells you what a quick impression he made as a character because he debuted basically two years before this line came out. He would have been brand new. And yet he got an action figure at the same time as like Banshee, who'd been around since the 60s. And he became popular really fast. Uh, I think that Chris Claremont originally intended, uh, but he's originally supposed to be a villain that he was going to betray the X-Men, but then that was changed um, because he was such a popular character. Yeah, basically, I mean, he was also included in the animated series that year as a, a basically a brand new X-Men. And then the following year, 1993, he'd get his own four-issue limited series, which both me and my mom have the full issue of and a plan on retiring off of the that investment money. Well, like, Gambit's awesome, hands down. Like, if you're a 90s X-Fan, like, you love Gambit. He we- is by far my favorite X-Man, and he was from the get-go. Uh, I, I don't um, I don't even know why. I just, as soon as I was introduced to the character, I loved everything about him. It's because he's wearing that skin-tight pride shirt. <laughs> he is so quasi-gay and so sexy. He really had, uh, like, that pink chest plate with, like, the silver thing going on, it, it screams confidence. <laughs> it really does. I mean, this is... Not during a time when lots of um, men were wearing hot pink, but Gambit pulled it off. Yes, and speaking of something else you could pull off this character, this action figure came conveniently with a poncho (laughs) that he could use. Like, if him and Storm got into a fight, like, this would not slow him down one bit. You could pair it with an umbrella from the Batman Returns Penguin. And he would be ready to go. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. So so Gambit, were, uh, the character has a trench coat, which like became this whole thing in the 90s. There were lots of like dark and mysterious characters with trench coats. Um, and they, <laughs> they represented his trench coat um, <laughs> with this like really, really awful plastic thing. <laughs> but like when I got this toy, I took that off immediately. Yeah, let let us not forget, though, that it was built to be played with because there is a hole in the back of the trench coat that you could put the trigger for the action figure feature through. So, like, he was ready to go. The collar of his jacket was molded plastic, so when you took the trench coat off, he was, like, still had a trench coat collar. Um, so the trench coat was really was really not good. It also was like this ugly orange color when it really should have been like a darker brown. So I had Gambit as a child and this was the first action figure I believe that I paid above market price for. I bought him at a newsstand in a uh, at a shopping mall um, that I went to with my parents and randomly this newsstand was selling X-Men action figures, and only X-Men action figures, and it didn't usually have action figures. Like one of those things in the mall where people, like, give you skin creams? <laughs> it, was, it was actually, it was built into the side. It wasn't a, a kiosk, but they were charging $10 for him, which, was, which was twice what you would pay at Toys R Us. But I, like, I convinced my dad to buy it for me because I loved Gambit so much. And I guess really it was, it was an action figure that my father paid above market price for rather than me. Well, I mean, you know, you never knew when you might see them again at that point. You had to buy it that second. 
Exactly. We didn't have Amazon back in those days. Let's talk a little bit about the f- character design. This is classic Remy. Yeah, this is his costume um, has been his look basically for the entirety of the character's history with, I mean, with, with some variations. He has the hot pink chest armor with the bright blue trim. He has the black tights with the pink detailing Ugh. and then the bright blue knee-high boots and then <laughs> to pull the look together, a rain jacket. <laughs> <laughs> and his eyes, his pupils are painted white versus like red. Also, interestingly, when Gambit first shows up and first links up with Storm, he's already wearing this costume. So when he was just thieving around Nolans, he was wearing uh, hot pink chest armor. It's it's so bizarre. It doesn't make any sense, but it looks great. We also, we didn't mention that he has what is sometimes called like the head sock. He has like the weird... Um, I mean, what would you, it's, it's almost like a, it's like a, like a ski mask with the face cut out. It's so yeah, weird. Yeah, but it looks cool. It like pulls his hair up and like, so it sort of like billows out the top as Gambit's hair always does. No, it all looks great. It all looks great. It just doesn't make any sense when you think about it. Let's not think too much about it. <laughs> right, I'm overthinking it. Are we going to talk about the bow staff? The techno battle staff? Yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah, it was this like crazy, like computer circuitry infused bow staff which was definitely not what he fought with in the comics but as a kid i didn't care i thought it was cool um of course gambo would have a futuristic techno bow staff it reads very shiar it, it it also to me like reads like this was an accessory from another toy line that they repurposed uh, <gasps> for this toy line Really? I hadn't even thought of that. Bonus points to whoever contacts us and let us know lets us know where this is originally from. 100%. Um, so I also, I just want to mention that um, I did not like the trench coat that came with him slash poncho. So I actually sewed my own trench coat for him. Oh. Uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. It was pretty adorable. Um, yeah, and what's his action feature? <laughs> his karate kick. <laughs> you know, you know how in the comics Gambit's always kicking people? It's true. <laughs> Here you can simulate that by um I mean it's a very standard act, you know, toy action um action figure uh feature. You press a lever on the back and this leg kicks up. You know, on the back of these cards there are, you know, drawings of how to use the action features. Even the person who drew it knew that you'd have to take off the jacket because the picture (laughs) has him depicted with the jacket off and still with the collar. I'm imagining whatever, like, intern was trying to get a job, you know, drawing comics and instead got this job. was like, oh, great. You guys molded his collar onto him? That's how he's depicted. Yeah. No, that was definitely, um, there's definitely a choice. Well, should we move on to Iceman? That's it! No more Mr. Ice Guy! I now proclaim this my icy cave of being aloneness. Iceman has the mutant ability to turn himself into a being of living ice. Once he does that, he can create almost anything he wants. Ice slides, ice weapons, ice shields, not to mention icicles and snowballs. And when he really concentrates, he can create a blinding snowstorm, even in the middle of July. But most important of all, the X-Men know that no matter how hot the battle, Iceman always keeps his cool. Aw, Bobby. 
is it just near like it there's like there's like a sexual undercurrent to this one too uh, what pray tell are you referring to andy <laughs> like refer to battles as hot like this is a really hot battle bobby drake the Iceman is not known for his actual battle capabilities. Like, I don't even picture him as going into battle that much, let's be honest. So, so ultimately, in the comics, he would gain the power to turn himself into a being of living ice. I don't think that he could do that at this point. Um, I could be wrong. I could be totally wrong about that. I didn't research it. I did research a little bit about Iceman because we know he's one of the original X-Men, right? And he first appeared as basically like a snowman (laughs) with legs. But he sort of first took the ice form that he's depicted as here in issue 39 of the comic series, which is about 1967. And then he just sort of was that way up until this action figure came out in 92. Iceman is one of those characters who, over the course of his history, he's become more and more powerful because part of his story is that he is holding himself back. I don't think it was until after Emma Frost took over his body that he realized that he could actually turn his entire body into ice. Yeah, this figure, the action is changes color in the freezer. So... I did not have this one. I remember seeing it uh, in the store. I probably bought Forge instead. Big mistake, but I appreciate you branching out. Well, but then, so I I remember seeing him on the pegs and not buying him for whatever reason. Maybe I didn't have. Then he was really hard to find for a while. And I remember in um, Toy Fair magazine, this was one of the few that like went up in price um, because he was considered rare. As part of my research for today's episode, I was trying to find a video that would show me like what, he, if, if it worked or not. And I found one video of someone opening like this version of the toy and submerging it in ice water and, and nothing happened. But that could be oh. because it was 30 years old at that point. I don't know. This one also came with basically like an ice cube mold. Yeah. <laughs> for those hot days when you wanted to stick the action figure in your drink. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, during, um, at least during this era of the X-Men, Iceman was known for creating these ice slides that he would, you know, travel around on. It's a very, I think it's a very good accessory for him to come with. He comes with like a large ice slide and then, yeah, there's a mold in it so you could fill it with water and put it in the freezer and then have an actual block of ice that he could, I guess, get things wet with. Uh, yeah, I th- I can only picture this making a mess. I, I'm sure Paris loved this. I mean, because you could like conceivably put him on the pegs, stick, put water in it, put it in the freezer. Two hours later, come out and like put him on your countertop, and then sort of push it, and it would slide and melt everywhere. <laughs> this leaves us with one real hero left in this in this series, and that's... A totally different character, one who's not overexposed, wearing a costume you've never seen before in this series. Yes, I know you guys were excited. Third edition Wolverine. Okay, pal. You come easy, or I get to make cocktail ice for a hundred. Sorry, pal. You're skating on thin ice. So this is Wolverine and that same yellow and blue costume from Uncanny X-Men 275. Let me read the card back because I'm sure you're curious as to who exactly this character is. When it comes to fighting evil mutants, the X-Men know there's no one better than Wolverine. 
With his razor-sharp adamantium claws, his lightning-quick reflexes, and his unmatched combat experience, Wolverine can outfight anyone. Thanks to his super-fast mutant healing ability, in just a few short hours, he's totally healthy and ready for action again, no matter how serious his wounds. I will give them credit for writing a different card back. It is basically the same beats as the other one, just in a different order. They didn't even bother to get a picture of him in this costume. Yes, he's wearing his red and orange costume on the front. I think if they know that that's a better Wolverine costume. (laughs) I I had this as a kid. Oh my gosh, you're the reason why we had so many Wolverine toys. I am. So um, I don't think I realized it as much as a child, but looking at this as an adult, like this is the exact same toy as the second edition with like a couple of minor differences in the sculpting and a different head. Again, like as we talked about with Banshee and Forge, Wolverine wore this costume very briefly in the comics for about five issues. And I guess they wanted to make another Wolverine figure, so they put him in it. But I will say that I do like the head sculpt. It's like the unmasked Logan head. I think it looks pretty good. Yeah, and it's got like a little bit more mutton chop going on than the first one. So he's, he's grizzled. All of my skepticism aside, as a kid, I did like the idea of, I guess I liked, cons- I guess I liked conformity among my superheroes. I did like the idea of them having like a uniform. And I liked the idea of like Wolverine could wear the X-Men uniform on some missions and then his own costume on other missions. Like we sort of hinted at this earlier. When you look at the, the whole line, like lined up, it's a lot of yellow and blue. It is a lot of yellow and blue. Um, but again, if they were designing these figures during that brief era where that's what they were all wearing, then maybe they thought that this was, you know, this was like the look of the X-Men in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. They were wrong. <laughs> it was the look of the X-Men in the 90s for about five months. I don't have anything else to say about this figure. Like, it's just, it's, there's nothing else that's different about it. It's there. He does come with a gun. We should mention that. So if you lost your gun from Wolverine 2nd Edition, you can use the gun from Wolverine 3rd Edition. That sort of wraps up the heroes in Wave 2. My wish is that Wolverine 3, despite him being your first figure for Wolverine, would have been switched out for something else. Uh, yes. Well, we talked about this earlier. There was the unreleased Havoc figure. Oh, Yeah. Was- Incident on the car back. So at one point in the development of this line, there was going to be a Havoc figure in, in his like classic Saturn-inspired costume. I knew who Havoc was um, from, I think, the trading cards at this time. And so I, I recognized him on the car back. And it was disappointing that he wasn't featured as a character you could actually get. I didn't know who it was. It would take years before I would know that Cyclops had a lamer brother. Yeah, so eventually this version of Havoc was released, I think, as a Toy Fair magazine exclusive. With the black costume and the white circles on the chest? Yeah. This one, looking at this, I know that this is the body of a Daredevil figure that would come out later. Oh, really? Because <laughs> I have that Daredevil figure. That's hilarious. I would have loved to have seen, like, I would love to have seen a Havoc figure, like, in this style of figures, which, like, we didn't ever really get. But it also seems like a lot of characters could have better used the Forge and Banshee slot. I would have loved to have seen a rogue action figure. Uh, Even before the relaunch, when she rejoined the team and became a part of the blue team, Rogue had been an X-Men for, an X-Man, X-Person, a member of the X-Men for a long time at this point. And I think was certainly more deserving of an action figure than 
forge. I guess if we'll, if we'll take as gospel that they decided we couldn't have any women in any lines, that still leaves you with a lot of opportunities for characters to have included instead. Because at this point, this wave has two members of the X-Men blue team, Gambit and Wolverine. And then the previous wave had Cyclops from that team. We could have gotten a Beast action figure. In this Beast wave. is exactly what I was sort of like pointing towards, I think. Uh, especially because wave one had like two super strong characters and this one didn't really have any like anybody's muscly yeah no they they definitely everyone knows that every superhero team has to have a character with super strength at least one and Who's like big and muscly and wave two it's just a whole bunch of weaklings over here with their six packs but you know not strong enough to lift anything um which were your which were your favorites um, Gambit, of course, even with that collar. That yeah. actually came to be a feature of our toy. <laughs> it yeah. could block bullets from the back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, G- Gambit was definitely my favorite, uh, 100%. I think it's a pretty good likeness of him, and I just, I love the character so much. And I, I'm going to have to say, I'm going to save a lot of my wishes for the next episode, because... I was heavily invested in villains at this point. This was during my blue period. This was a good time for X-Men villains. So I look forward to hearing more about that. Before we go there, however, what's the snicked? What's the snicked? Yes, we've got two Wolverines to review on the snicked scale. And so for Wolverine second edition, I would, so so to review, the snicked scale is a way for us to rate how superfluous um, or ridiculous or um, ass-grabby a Wolverine action figure was um, because they were intent on giving us at least one Wolverine every single wave. Exactly. So Wolverine second edition and the classic tiger stripe costume. I mean, that's zero out of five for me because this, I think this is an essential Wolverine figure. I didn't even know we could go zero, but yes. I, the only reason I'm hesitant to t- say zero is because we gave the brown suit a one. Oh, you're right. So for consistency, we should give this one a one. Yeah, this is classic Wolvie. No, no arguments there. What about Wolverine 3rd edition? I think you're going to be surprised by my rating. So I would give this... Two out of five Snickets. I'm really surprised by that rating. (laughs) Well, here's why. It's definitely not an essential costume, but given that this jumpsuit is an iconic look for the X-Men in general, this is something that you could, you could believably use this Wolverine in, like, as if you're a child playing with these toys, you could use this Wolverine in any mission that you would have Wolverine on. It may not be his classic look, but like it's a believable look for him and anything you would have him do. And when we get later into this line, we're going to find that there are many Wolverines that do not fit that criteria. I thought I was being generous with a three, but I'll let you keep, keep the two. Obviously, there's a special place in your heart for your first Wolverine action figure. And, and who am I to take that away from you? I appreciate that. Thank you for being so generous. <laughs> So how can people connect with us? You can always email us at toyfixpodcast at gmail.com. I'm super excited to be checking those. Yeah, we love to hear from you. Um, 
tell us your reactions to this. If you have any like fond memories of these toys, if there's anything that we missed, anything we got wrong, um, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you and talk to you. Um, yeah, I want to again give a shout out to The Real Gentleman of Leisure. Um, it's a website I've talked about before. They have great reviews of X-Men comics. I cross-referenced those in getting the issue numbers um, that we talked about today. And then they also have reviews of the toys, which are a lot of fun. Uh, I used a really good summary of the X-Men team development from comic book resources, cbr.com, to help sort of time frame blue and gold and then we also used uh figure realms photos of the x-men toys um for all the waves finally i do have to say that amazing write-up by ruth from uncannyxmen.net and not to forget her co-author monolith well um i think that's it until next episode right wes until next time that was episode three looking at the heroes in wave two of toy biz Thanks for listening. So until yellow and blue costume Wolverine gets a ring that I can wear on my other hand, make mine toy fix.